0: Hey everyone, welcome back to Chronic Failure Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Bostock. Today we will be talking about a tragedy that mirrors last week's episode. Of course, I'm talking about the Seveso-Dioxin accident in northern Italy. Today we're turning our attention to India. In fact, this week's episode is said to be India's worst industrial disaster, and this disaster is the Bhopal gas tragedy. Let's go ahead and get this episode started. I hope you enjoy today's episode, and as always, thank you for listening. 37 million Americans are living in places with unhealthy levels of air. The number of weather-related disasters has increased fivefold in the past 50 years. Tonight, amid record-breaking heat and explosive wildfire bringing devastation to Northern California. The Red Sea corals are on the threat of toxic waste water being dumped into the sea from an oil processing plant. Because there are of dangerous ancient microbes buried deep under the permanent frozen... On the night of December 2nd, 1984, an invisible menace seeped through the streets of Bhopal, a city in the Madhya Pradesh province of India. Before the sun would rise on that day, thousands would die in their sleep. Unfortunately, the nightmare would reach its zenith later, as thousands more would be set to lose their lives in the aftermath of what would become the worst industrial accident in history. Now, before we get into the disaster and what led up to it, let's kind of contextualize a little bit. Bhopal is a town, as I said, in the Madhya Pradesh province of India. Now, Madhya Pradesh is located in central India. And it also boasts having a easily accessible transport infrastructure. So Bhopal experienced a population burst in the stretch between the 1950s and the 1980s, and this saw the population increasing from 60,000 people to upwards of 800,000 people. In the 1960s, there was a Green Revolution underway in India, so, agriculture shifted into a more modernized version, which meant the adaptation of new technologies such as pesticides and herbicides. Later on in the 1970s, the Indian government initiated policies encouraging foreign companies to invest in local industry. This is where the Union Carbide Corporation comes into play, or the UCC. Now this was a U.S. company. It came in and built a plant in Bhopal by way of its subsidiary, which was Union Carbide India Limited, in order to capitalize on the modernization of the agricultural sector, as well as the incentives laid out by the Indian government. Now, it should be noted, this U.S. company-built plant was built sometime between 1969 and 1970. Unfortunately, the sources kind of contradict each other when it comes to that. So, when it came to it, in short, UCC foresaw an untapped market in India. In the remainder of this episode, I will call the plant either UCIL or Bhopal, just for brevity's sake. So, this UCIL plant produced carbaryl, a pesticide which was marketed under the brand name SEVEN. That's S-E-V-I-N. So, SEVEN was an insecticide. It was commonly used in Asia, and it was originally produced using imported chemical components. Now, one of the ingredients in the creation of 7 was a chemical called methyl isocyanate, which we'll refer to as MIC in this episode for short. Now, it should be noted there are other methods of making 7 that do not rely on the use of this MIC, but they tend to be more expensive. In 1979, UCC decided to manufacture MIC directly at the Bhopal plant. Now, this practice is called backward integration, and it's characterized as the manufacture of raw materials and intermediate products for formulation of the final product within one facility. Now, this process tends to be characterized as being inherently more sophisticated and hazardous. So, one question many people have in mind is why Bo Paul? So UCC chose Bhopal to build a plant for its central location and easy access to transportation. The plant itself is surrounded by what is referred to in our source material as working class slums. In the neighborhoods of Bhopal, you can find two types of housing. The Kucha houses. These houses traditionally have no windows and no doors. Or the puka houses. And these houses are more permanent structures akin to a westernized version of a house. You know things like permanent structure that has doors and windows. So other names for these areas are also shantytowns and hutments. Now this is the backdrop against which our story will later unfold. Now, after this disaster, a sentiment was cultivated in the West immediately following, as Annie Rice, a contributing writer for the International Labor Organization, aptly points out in her article titled "Bo Paul Revisited: The Tragedy of Lessons Ignored," published in the Asian Pacific Newsletter in 2006. Quote: At the time. Many people in developed countries viewed the Bhopal tragedy as an isolated event in a faraway land that resulted from conditions and factors endemic to developing countries. Statements were made by governments and the chemical industry that such an accident could not occur in the industrialized Western countries. Some even suggested that accidents like Bhopal were to be expected, the price that must be paid for technological development. Hopefully, this podcast has demonstrated time and time again that this type of incident is not isolated to just developing countries. That is a very good point that I like to bring out in these episodes. Subsequent reports on this disaster would infer that the plant operated in a problematic way, which was common in many industrial sectors worldwide at the time. Now going back to rice in her article, she rounds them up as, quote, concrete and preventable problems. Now, the sheer scale of the loss of life in this event, however, has made it unique in that it is the worst environmental disaster in history in terms of its death toll. So, let's go ahead and get back to the main story. As I touched upon earlier, UCC decided to make its own MIC in order to avoid importing it. So what is this MIC? Well, it is an intermediate chemical that was used in the production of several pesticides. It's extremely toxic and it happens to be colorless, odorless, lacrimatory and flammable. When one is exposed to MIC, they may experience one or all of these symptoms. Eye irritations, breathlessness, vomiting, and death within hours. Another interesting tidbit of information is MIC's relationship with water. So MIC is actually water-soluble. In fact, it reacts strongly with water. So when mixed with water, it causes an exothermic reaction. So at 25 degrees Celsius in excess water, half of the MIC is consumed within nine minutes. So this can be an issue. If the heat is not properly removed from the heating mixture, the rate of the reaction will increase and rapidly cause the MIC to boil. So, this exothermic process can lead to a runaway reaction. Because of MIC's volatile nature, Strict storage guidelines are meant to be observed for its containment on site. At this UCIL plant, there was a requirement that they always have an empty tank on hand. And that's in order to dump out excess MIC. These storage tanks should only be filled with MIC at about 50% capacity, which is about equivalent to 30 tons of this liquid. Now, the remaining 50% of the tank would then be filled up with liquid nitrogen, which would keep the MIC stabilized. So the way it stabilized it is that the pressurized inner nitrogen gas pressurized the liquid MIC and allowed the mixture to be pumped out at will. And it also allowed the tank to be protected from impurities and moisture. Because this mixture is so potent, there is some infrastructure that was put into place to maintain safety. One such system was a vent gas scrubber, and this part was designed to neutralize toxic discharge from the MIC system with caustic soda. Now, the second system was a 30-ton refrigeration unit. Now, this refrigeration unit was used as a safety component to cool the MIC storage tanks. And then on top of that, the third system was a gas flare safety system, or what is commonly known as a flare tower. As I mentioned earlier, MIC is a compound used in the manufacturing process to make seven. So how does this part of the process work? Well, manufacturing MIC requires two components combined at high temperatures in their gaseous phases. So these two components are methylamine and phosgene and those make up MIC. Now to go on further and create seven, The MIC is combined with one Naftal. Let's go ahead and shine a little light on the corporation. When UCC set up for shop in India, the Indian government originally gave the company permission to generate up to 5,000 tons of seven. Now, in reality, the market demand for 7 at the time was closer to 2 tons. For whatever reason, the UCC higher-ups in the United States still went ahead and built a plant with the capacity to meet the theoretical maximum output of that 5,000 tons. Now, this means that the facility was very large, and it also meant that it employed many people. This, of course, resulted in the plant being oversized and overstaffed. By the 1980s, sales of seven weren't doing well in India. In fact, farmers could not afford to invest in pesticides, and this was caused by crop failures from drought and floods along with famine. About two years later, sales started to pick up. In fact, they were at half capacity. After another two years passed by, so in 1984, sales had plummeted again to only one-quarter capacity. And this was just because there was a decreasing demand for pesticides. Of course, the plant was still producing its normal amount of 7, and this led to them having to store extra MIC on site, which will be an issue later on. So this all paints the picture that in the 80s, the plant wasn't generating any marked profit, and it was also oversized, overstaffed, and had too much volatile MIC just sitting around. Of course, as we've seen in many of our episodes so far, the initial unfounded spurt of greed of the company was remedied by an equally reactionary cutting of costs. So let's go ahead and take a look at that. In order to save money, UCC cut down expenditure. This came in the form of the company undertaking massive layoffs. So many workers were laid off. And these were namely the ones that were highly skilled due to the fact that they were generally paid the most. And an example of this was the U.S.-born plant director being laid off. And this was a person labeled in our source material as a safety first kind of guy and very procedural. Of course, they didn't leave this spot empty. They actually put a U.S. educated Indian national in his position. Now, this person was tasked with saving UCC as much money as possible. And there was oversight on his ability to do this. So he was answerable to a committee which put a ton of pressure on him. To exemplify the state of the plant, there was talk of selling the plant, but no buyers could be found at the time. There was... Also talk of dismantling the plant and sending the whole operation off to South America. But unfortunately, the plant was in such a poor state that it's reported there were doubts as to whether the move could even be done. So going back to cuts, another area that suffered was the general maintenance area. So the length of time between routine security was nearly doubled, and the infrastructure was upkept with subpar material. For example, a stainless steel part would be replaced by a regular steel part. So with all this going on, there was a general feeling of sweating the assets, which translates as using materials and machines to the bone, or until they die. Now, methods of operation were also becoming more carefree and hazardous. As you can imagine, all these factors would bleed into the unfortunate turn of events that happened in December of 1984. Going back to the beginning of this episode, the MIC needed to manufacture seven was stored on site. Now, along with this, I mentioned the very specific storage guidelines when it comes to storing MIC. So talking about these storage tanks that were used, there was three double-walled partially buried tanks and they were codenamed E610 E611, and E619. Now each tank could contain 68,000 liters of product. Of course, these tanks were not just out in the middle of nowhere. There was some infrastructure to get the MIC from the manufacturing process to the storage. So from the plant a common pipe would run along the tanks and then branched out feeding each individual tank. Now each pipe was outfitted with a safety relief valve that in turn fed into a common relief pipe. A rupture disc was installed at the end of the relief line. And this was designed to break at 40 psi or pounds per square inch. Now at the time there was yearly safety inspections that were being scaled back due to those cutbacks I spoke of. One of these inspections however occurred in 1984. Now this inspection revealed some worrying trends poor worker performance, as well as alarms and instruments being poorly maintained and not regularly tested. What's more is in 1984, a senior engineer reported that what he saw at the plant was worrying. Now with the complaints and the inspections, an internal report was drawn up the same year, which highlighted the risk of a runaway reaction in the MIC storage tanks due to a number of defects. Unfortunately, the report was never forwarded through the relevant channels in order to see meaningful change. Now that we have the background of the location and some of the equipment that was used, let's go ahead and talk about the disaster. On the night of December 2nd, 1984, water made its way into the MIC storage tank. As you may recall, MIC is highly reactive to water. Different theories would result when it comes to the intent behind the origin of the accident, but here's what you need to know. During a routine cleaning operation, water infiltrated tank E610. Now it was reported that there was a clog in the pipe that connected the plant to the storage tank. So naturally a hose was connected to the pipe and water was passed through in an attempt to unclog it. At the time, the affected tank E610 contained 42 tons of MIC, which is 12 tons more than what is slated to be in those tanks. What followed this mix of water and MIC was the worst case scenario a runaway exothermic reaction? This reaction was exacerbated by contaminants, high ambient temperatures, and the presence of iron from the corroding non stainless steel pipes. So, around 10 p.m., the pressure in tank E610 was noted as being 2 PSI, which doesn't sound like a lot, but it would increase from there. By 11 p.m., pressure had risen and was recorded at 10 PSI. It was at this time, two senior employees reported that the pressure reading must have been a malfunction, and it was assumed that the gauge was just faulty. This was a bad call, certainly, but it put things into perspective. Shakla Koreshi, the supervisor who was on duty at the time, was quoted as saying, “Instruments often didn't work. They got corroded and crystals would form on them. Around 10:30 p.m, the first signs of exposure were being felt by employees which prompted the search for a leak. At 11:45 pm, a leak was found. Now even though there was a leak and employees were feeling the effects of these chemicals, Quareschi ultimately decided that the leak would only be addressed after The 12.15 break. This was another bad call. Kroeshi claimed that he was only told about a water leak, not a gas leak. So after the break ended at 12.40, it is reported that the reaction in the tank accelerated rapidly within the span of 5 minutes. In fact, temperatures in the tank now had passed the 25 degrees Celsius, and this was noted by Suman Day, which was a worker at the plant at that time. Now at this point, with the temperature being that high and so much time passing by, the pressure in the tank had soared to an astonishing 55 PSI. Going back to Sumin Day, that employee, he started to hear a rumbling sound, so he investigated the area. As he was investigating, the concrete slab where he stood, which was a 60-foot concrete area, which was at least 6 inches thick, began to crack. It was around this time an emergency relief valve busted open and started venting toxic gas directly into the air. Now if we recall in the beginning of the episode, this vented gas should have been vented off into a capturing system with caustic soda But unfortunately, this was not the case. At least three safety measures were in place to prevent such an event from occurring, and all of them failed. The fast-acting Qureshi ordered that a water curtain be sprayed on the gas cloud. Now, remember, MIC is water-soluble. The water jet was designed to reach a height of 12 to 15 meters, but this particular gas cloud was emanating at a height of 33 meters, so it was simply out of reach, and this would be the first failed attempt at curtailing this accident. Now, going back to one of those systems that I mentioned, the vent gas scrubber, which was designed to neutralize toxic discharge from the MIC system with caustic soda, it had been shut off three weeks prior. And in any case, it was actually ill-equipped. It was later said that it did not have enough caustic soda to neutralize this size of reaction. Now that second system, the refrigeration unit, used to cool the storage tanks, had also been shut down and had been drained of its coolant, which was being used in another part of the plant. Now of course, we already know it failed, but that third system, the Gas flare safety system had actually been disconnected for about three months due to the maintenance of a corroded pipe. Now, of course, as all of this was going on, the safety features were being shut down and pipes were corroding, causing other things to be shut down. Production of seven resumed as per usual, just without any safety measures. About 30 tons of MIC escaped from the E610 tank in the first hour of the leak. It was at 12.50, an employee triggered two siren alarms. Now the first, a muted siren, rang inside the plant, and the second, a loud alarm, was designed to alert the public. Now, as you can probably guess, this alarm system had been decoupled in 1982. So this meant that one could set off the alarm internally, warning UCC staff inside the plant of an imminent danger whilst avoiding alerting the public. And no one seemed to know this. Now, the rationale there was that in some cases, the public didn't need to be needlessly alarmed by the incidents, incidents such as minor leaks. The outside alarm in this case was quickly turned off by plant personnel, and it was reasoned that the public just didn't need to be notified at this time. But, as we know, a plume of gas had already escaped into the early morning air. The cool morning air started to condense the gas, and so it began floating down on Bapal, where it would then creep into homes with no windows, or into homes with open doors and windows. Now, almost two hours later, the public siren came back on. But by then, people had already been made aware. Either they had been jolted from sleep by the first signs of exposure, or the screams of their neighbors and the ensuing cacophony in the streets. According to the book titled, Advocacy After Bhopal, by Kim Fortune, quote, Within hours, the homes and streets of Bhopal were littered with human corpses and the carcasses of buffaloes, cows, and birds. An estimated 3,800 people died immediately, mostly in the poor slum colony adjacent to the UCC plant. Had the sirens of the slums been alerted in any way, they could have potentially sheltered in place, which being slums and not really having good sealed structures probably wouldn't have been the best idea, but they most importantly could have evacuated and perhaps the outcome would have been different. According to the entry by the Center for Science and Environment, the CSE, quote, UCC's report on the incident claims that tank E610 had 90,000 pounds of MIC at the time of the incident. For approximately two hours, the safety valve remained open, releasing over 50,000 pounds of MIC in vapor and liquid form, and God alone knows what other gases—phosgene, hydrogen cyanide, carbon dioxide—all of which have been mentioned—could have been released. Sometime between 1.30 sometime between one thirty a.m. and two thirty a.m., the safety valve receded as the tank pressure went below 40 psi. Now, of course, we know now that the damage, irrevocable and only just beginning, was already well underway. When it comes to the effects of the Bhopal gas tragedy, they were acute and immediate, as well as extensive and drawn-out. Initially, exposed individuals suffered from coughing, severe eye irritation, a feeling of suffocation, burning in the respiratory tract, breathlessness, stomach pains, and vomiting. Now, there were thousands of people that died in that initial wave, and their causes of death were essentially choking, pulmonary edema and reflexogenic circulatory collapse. Now because of this, the local hospitals were overrun. What's more, in a parallel to our Seveso episode, doctors were unable to treat the first waves of victims as UCC had still not released that the noxious gas had been released from its plant, and that it was, in fact, MIC. Now, some reports state that a spokesperson for UCC had even stated that the gas was responsible for itchy eyes at best. Now, the exact number of deaths is difficult to tally. Many corpses were thrown into the river, and many family members would take their relatives' body away from the hospitals and morgues without the deceased person being registered or identified. In 2008, the government of Madhya Pradesh paid out compensation to the families of 3,787 victims who lost their lives in the initial gas leak. A further 574,366 injured victims were compensated as well. Now this can help visualize what is considered official numbers, but it's likely that there were many, many more victims. According to the local municipal workers who loaded up the bodies to be burned in mass graves, the number of initial deaths is closer to 15,000. The number of shrouds sold in the city following the disaster would place the number at around 8,000. So as you can see, there is a lot of variation but UCC's number is quite conservative regardless. Let's go ahead and finally look at the aftermath of this tragedy. In his book titled Bhopal, Vulnerability, Routinization, and the Chronic Disaster, Ravi Rajan Fittingly characterizes the aftermath of Bhopal as such The disaster has, during the past 14 years, metamorphosed from a sudden calamity to a chronic cancer. It's been reported that in the decades following the accident, half a million people were still suffering from residual health effects. increased vulnerability. The survivors of the initial gas cloud were reported as suffering from cancers, blindness, loss of livelihood, financial strain, and post traumatic stress disorder. In around 1985 the Indian Council for Medical Research Established the Bhopal Gas Disaster Research Center at the Gandhi Medical College in Madhya Pradesh in order to study the effects of MIC. Now, according to an article published in the medical journal The Lancet in 2013, a large number of the initial cohort of affected residents, as well as the control group, had been lost over the years, greatly affecting the data and culminating in a missed opportunity to study the effects of MIC on a large number of people. However, the limited findings in the current study indicate substantial acute and ongoing adverse health impacts on those exposed. Now, according to Colin Toogood, a spokesperson for Bhopal Medical Appeal, an organization which has provided free medical care, education, and community support since 1996, quote, an estimated 120,000 to 150,000 survivors still struggle with serious medical conditions, including nerve damage, growth problems, gynecological disorders, respiratory issues, birth defects, and elevated rates of cancer and tuberculosis. When it comes to accountability, in the immediate aftermath of the accident, UCC predictably aimed to distance itself from the situation it decided to put the blame squarely on its subsidiary, UCIL, and it also claimed that the accident has been an act of sabotage by, in some cases, a previously unknown Sikh group, or in some stories, a disgruntled employee. Now, it should be noted that these claims have never been substantiated. UCC never reached out to any authorities while the gas leak was happening. Local authorities tried, however, to contact the plant several times while the gas leak was happening, but were always met with denial. The Bhopal plant actually had a sister plant in West Virginia, and that's in the United States, which operated under higher safety standards than its counterpart in India. In a trend that we're now zeroing in on through this podcast, UCC would eventually cough up some financial compensation in exchange for not having to publicly admit any guilt. While they tried to play this off, Survivors of the disaster have still been fighting for damages and medical rehabilitation. In February of 1989, UCC was ordered to pay out $470 million for the damages caused by the Bhopal disaster. This would go towards compensation for the victims but it should be noted that the original claim was for $3 billion, so they received substantially less. As of 2004, the last of the compensation claims had been cleared. One positive thing that came out of this was that UCC was also responsible to fund a hospital in Bhopal, And this was to the tune of $17 million in order to specifically treat victims of the disaster. And of course, the company was pretty much forced to agree. As of today, no organization has taken full responsibility for what has happened in Bhopal. Indian lawmakers in the wake of Bhopal introduced a liability law that holds foreign companies unambiguously responsible for accidents on Indian soil. Now, one thing I did want to mention is that the settlement was really just focused on compensating the victims. But nothing has really been set forth to remediate any of the water or land that was polluted with MIC. Remember, it is water-soluble, so it is almost guaranteed that this chemical is in the soil and water. The Bhopal gas tragedy was, like many others of its kind, preventable. It was, however, unique in the sheer scope of its immediate and utmost effect on people. It caused sudden death on a scale that is truly inconceivable. Now, UCC did initially claim sabotage, but like I mentioned, that theory has never been supported. The payout that UCC were ordered to pay only ended up panning out to be 300 to 500 dollars per surviving victim. In a video segment for The Economist released in 2015, a compensated survivor named Hajira B says that the compensation fees would be largely spent on consultation fees at the doctor, so it really didn't pan out to help the victims at all. As for the environmental cleanup, as I mentioned, it has been passed on to the Indian government with Dow Chemical, UCC's new owner, squarely refusing any responsibility. It is, however, reported that there is evidence that the plant's activity has affected the water quality of the surrounding area, which, according to what we know about this chemical, is very likely, if not certain. In a 2014 article for Mother Jones Magazine, journalist Maggie Oatman details how Warren Anderson the CEO of Union Carbide at the time of the tragedy, weathered the fallout of his criminal indictment on behalf of the Indian government in the comfort of his luxury home in the Hamptons. This is such a stark dichotomy when presented with the backdrop of Bhopal. The victims of the plant's toxic wretch in 1984 were largely poor, with no tangible way to seek out justice for their undeserved suffering. Organizations however, such as Amnesty International, are still pushing for Union Carbide's current owner Dow Chemical to accept responsibility for the Bhopal tragedy, arguing that At the very least, it is their moral responsibility to fully pay for the cost of the disaster. Now, unfortunately, when it comes to business, morality is the last thing on their mind. Once again, I'd like to thank you for listening to this week's episode. I know we've had two separate gas type incidents in a row. I promise next week we will not have a similar episode but I cannot promise that we won't have similar episodes in the future. Initial research was done by Chloe Kibby. I want to remind you that we do have an Instagram page. We post photos and descriptions related to each topic over there. That is at the chronic failure podcast. And I would greatly appreciate if you would give us a like and follow on whatever listening platform you use. This is going to help get the word out about what we're doing over here and allow us to grow and maybe even increase the scope of topics that we discuss. Of course, we do have an email address. If you have topic ideas, if you have questions, if you just want to chat, that all sounds great. You can send us an email at info at chronicfailurepodcast.com. For next week's episode, we will be headed back to the United States, and we will be talking about the Love Canal tragedy. Quite simply, Love Canal is one of the most appalling environmental tragedies in American history. The Love Canal is an aborted canal project branching off of the Niagara River about four miles south of Niagara Falls. It is also the name of a 15-acre working-class neighborhood of around 800 single-family homes built directly adjacent to the canal. From 1942 to 1953, the Hooker Chemical Company, with government sanction, began using the partially dug canal as a chemical waste dump. At the end of this period the contents of the canal consisted of around 21 tons of toxic chemicals, including at least 12 that are known carcinogens, which are halogenated organics, chlorobenzenes, and dioxin among them. Public awareness of the disaster unfolded in the late 1970s when investigative newspaper coverage and grassroots door-to-door health surveys began to reveal a series of inexplicable illnesses, epilepsy, asthma, migraines, and nephrosis, and abnormally high rates of birth defects and miscarriages in the Love Canal neighborhood. What followed caused the Love Canal to quickly symbolize the looming environmental disaster represented by untold numbers of toxic waste disposal sites scattered throughout America. I hope you'll join me again next week as we talk about this topic. Until then, have a good one.